Welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast today. I'm Kevin Hopkins, author and host of the podcast. And today we're in Revelation chapter 8. Now we're going to consume quite a bit of material at one time. So just hang with me here because uh, the seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 8 are not so involved that we need to take them separately, but altogether it's a big chunk. So we're going to start in verse 6 of chapter 8 in the book of Revelation. The seven angels with the seven trumpets got ready to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there were hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was thrown down to earth with the result that one-third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a great mountain blazing with fire was cast into the sea, with the result that a third of the sea became blood, and a third part of the living creatures on the sea died, and one-third part of the boats were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a huge star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Now the name of the star is Absinthe, and a third of the water became bitter like wormwood, so that many people died as a result of the water because it had turned bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sunlight was darkened, and a third of the light of the moon, and a third of the stars, with the result that a third of them were darkened, and a third part of the daylight was extinguished, and the night lights in the same way. Well, that's four. Let's stop there. Four of the trumpets are sounded, and there are some really consistent results from each of the trumpets as it sounds. The first is sounded, and there was hail and fire mixed with blood thrown down to the earth, and a third of the earth is burned up, and a third of the trees, and a third of the green grass. So, Look at the parallels in all of these results, these plagues, with the plagues that came against Egypt. And here you have the first and the seventh directly mirrored. Um, there's blood, which was the water was turned to blood, and there's hail. And these are plagues of pain and suffering. Hail represents pain in the Old Testament. When hail comes and there's no shelter from it, you're in trouble because hail can damage you very quickly. I've been caught out in hailstorms with just marble-sized hail, and it, it hurts when it hits you. It just beats down on you. And unless you've got something to get under, there's no shelter, it's miserable. You can imagine how short a time people would be able to, to survive in golf ball-sized hail. I've seen the damage from tennis ball and softball-sized hail to cars. It's just obliterated them, totaled them out um, because the damage broke out all the windows, caved the roof in. So hail can be incredibly destructive. But the, the point here for people is that there's pain and the representation of blood is that there's suffering. Not necessarily total death, but some are going to die. And here, what really is focused upon is the trees and the grass and the earth that get burned with the fire. Notice the percentage, one-third. 
it is one third of whatever gets damaged that's lost. One third. It's a really exact percentage, isn't it? And it's consistent through all of these plagues. One third of whatever it is gets destroyed. It's not a majority piece, but it's a significant part. It's a loss that can be felt, but it's not a total loss. It's it's not a, a terminating loss of all the life on the earth. It's just enough that if you're watching, you'll notice. Uh, the second angel sounds his trumpet, and there's something like a great mountain blazing with fire cast into the sea. <clears throat> I've heard a lot of people speculate that this is a meteor or whatever. It could be, um, but that's not the point. The point is that this flaming mountain is cast into the sea and a third of the sea becomes blood. Again, a direct mirror of the plague on Egypt where the water was turned to blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea die. And interestingly enough, a third of the boats on the ocean are destroyed. Well, that's kind of an odd way to wipe out a third of the boats on the ocean. Uh, even if the even if the flaming mountain was as big as Pike's Peak and it hit in the middle of the Atlantic or the middle of the Pacific, it wouldn't wipe out one third of the boats on Earth. It would wipe out a whole bunch, especially by the resulting tidal wave. But there are a lot of boats on the face of the Earth. The issue isn't how many. The issue isn't that it's an exact number. It's a it's a proportion, right? It's a fraction. Again, a significant number, but not a majority. Enough that you'll notice the loss. Enough that the loss will be felt, but not enough to cripple commerce or, or to cripple the world. Now, if a third of the sea life actually died, that could cause some real problems. But it's not terminal yet. The third angel sounds his trumpet and a huge star falls from heaven burning like a torch. Now, it, that's not a whole lot different than a mountain on fire, but its purpose is different. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. It takes away one third of the fresh water of the earth, or at least makes it bitter. The name absinthe means bitterness. Um, there's, in fact, an herb by that name in our culture, and it's extremely bitter. It probably was uh, it probably existed in the time that John wrote this. Absinthe is probably something they knew about. And so a third of the water becomes bitter like wormwood, and people died as a result of the water being bitter. We don't know if it's because there was something poison in the water or if people just refused to drink it because it had become unpalatable. But again, now we're down to the people, but it doesn't say... A third of the people died. It said a third of the water became bitter and then people, some people died. We don't know how many people. The fourth angel sounds his trumpet and we get to the plague of darkness. A third of the sunlight's darkened, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of the daylight is extinguished and a third of the light at night is extinguished. Again, it's a noticeable fraction if a third of the daylight is extinguished, and, and many of us have been through 
partial or total lunar eclipses, and we've seen what happens when the sunlight drops to that level, uh, it's noticeable. It would affect plant life. It would affect food growing in the ground. It would, it would affect all those things that depend on sunlight for survival. When you drop the sunlight by a third, whether it's in number of hours during the day or by intensity, it affects life on Earth. So there's an affect here. And the real point of the plagues that are brought by the blowing of the trumpets is the affect that they, the, that they bring, the result of the blowing of those trumpets. And that result is significant. And that's what I want you to hang on to before we move on from this place into the last three trumpets, which change tone a little bit. So I want you to catch what's happening here. Uh, with the seven seals, things were released into the world. They weren't necessarily God's things. Uh, the, the four horsemen are not God's messengers. They are earthly actors that bring about earthly results. And, and they bring violence and evil and war and, and hunger and inequality and death on the earth. But those forces are already at work in our world. With the trumpets, at least the first four of them, we see these plagues which almost exactly mirror the plagues on Egypt. Ask yourself, what was the purpose of the plagues on Egypt? It was to get Pharaoh's attention. It was to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go, right? The purpose of the plagues on Egypt was to free God's people. The purpose here is much the same because God's people are still on the earth. God's people are working and doing. They've been sealed for protection, but they're still on the earth. And they are captive, not to a Pharaoh, but they are captive to the earth's systems. You and I who serve Jesus Christ are captive on this earth. Now, the, it's true, the old saw that we're just passing through. Well, that's true. Yet while we pass through, we're captive to the earth and its systems. There are Christians on this earth who live under communism. There are Christians on this earth who live under real fascism. In my country, it's really popular to point fingers at each other and call each other fascists. We haven't seen a fascist in the United States, maybe ever, certainly not in control. Uh, we have idiots in control who belong to either party, but we haven't yet seen a real fascist. Um, we, we move that way a little more each each 10 years or so, it looks to me like. In my lifetime, that's been the truth. A fascist uh, uh, amplifies national identity over anything else. We're Americans, and we ought to have things our way and do things our way because we're better than everyone else. Um, putting America first doesn't mean that we're better than everybody else. Uh, exceptionalism doesn't mean that we are better than everyone else. It means that we're exceptionally gifted 
and we've give, been given exceptional opportunities with which we ought to do exceptional things. That's not fascism. Fascism says we're Americans, we are the master race, we are better than anybody else, and everyone else will ultimately need to bow down to us. Uh, fascism exalts military power over almost everything else. So uh, a fascist not only invests in huge military power, but he installs himself as the ultimate authority over that military. The United States Constitution keeps that from happening. So there are a lot of things in our world that are ugly, but they're not fascist. Um, but the world, we have Christians in this world who live under real fascism. We have Christians in this world who will starve to death in the next 24 hours. Uh, in the United States, I hear a lot of people stand up and say things like, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed begging bread. Well, you should get out more <laughs> because I have. Um, you don't have to look very far to see Christian people, people who believe dearly in God and follow Jesus Christ, still starve to death every day somewhere on this planet. Um, God is looking about saving their soul. He's looking about providing for them eternally. But the effects of what naturally occur on this earth aren't always interrupted by God. And so these people, as we look around us, are a significant portion of this earth's population that are today affected by hunger, affected by disease, affected by poverty, affected by, by governments that are not anything close to following God. We're captive to those influences. Even in my country, I'm captive to many of the influences of those who govern my country. I'm absolutely free in many ways and absolutely a captive in others. I'm not free, for example, to just not pay my taxes. Now, I may not send them in all the time because my withholding each year may be more than what I actually owe. So I don't bother the government with refunding what they owe me back. That's my mistake, I guess. I may not always file my taxes, but if you owe them and you don't pay them, you're not free and you won't be free for very long. You're not free to cause problems in society. You're not free to go around shooting everybody in your community who doesn't look like you. That will land you in prison forever very quickly. You're not absolutely free to do absolutely anything you want to. You're captive to the laws and the regulations, the rules, the practices, the traditions of the place where you live. I wish that I was absolutely free, but I'm afraid that if I was, I'd probably do bad things with it. I'd probably mess it all up. So some law, some structure, some reasonable community expectations are probably a good thing, but then I become captive to those things. I live in an empire. Wherever I am on the face of this earth, I live under some kind of empire. And I belong to the kingdom. So the dissonance is always going to exist in my life. I have to serve two masters by design. I have to pay my taxes. And, and Jesus addresses this with Peter. Peter comes to him and says, Lord, uh, 
We don't have jobs anymore. We're following you around, but the Romans expect us to pay our tax because their tax wasn't based on their income. It was based on the fact that they were alive. There was a per head tax. Lord, we have to pay our taxes. What are we going to do? Jesus said, go fishing. (laughs) Peter must have looked at him like he was absolutely crazy. But Jesus says, go fishing, catch a fish. When you open its mouth, you're going to find two coins. One will pay your tax and one will pay mine. Go to the tax collectors and pay for us both. Because God can provide the things that you need while you're under the rules of an ungodly government. That's what that message is about. God provides. You don't have to worry about where your sustenance is going to come from. Now, back to Revelation chapter 8 and these plagues. You'll notice again that they affect um, a certain percentage, a significant percentage of the food, the water, the plants, the land, the people, a noticeable percentage, but not a majority. God isn't trying to wipe out the world with these trumpets. He's trying to get your attention so that those who are watching say, hmm, looks like God's at work here. And those who are in leadership positions who care might take notice and say, hmm, God's at work. Perhaps we should change the way that we lead. Because the only thing that really gets the the attention of leadership is when their followers start to die off, right? When your followers start to die off, you're losing power just by the fact that there aren't that many people to contribute to your power base anymore. That's what God's trying to do here. This is the seal's were the release of bad things in this world, and it explains why there's bad things like that. The trumpets are are telling you that God is continually trying to get your attention and the attention of your leaders to know that God's people are here. They belong to him. They may be under your direction. They are not under your rule. They might be under your control, but they are not under your domain, your dominion. They belong to the kingdom. And and God's trying to tell the rulers and the powers that be, the leaders of this world, look, you're not in control here. Look what I can do to a fraction of your stuff just with a wave of my hand. When I first read it and understood it this way, that thought seemed kind of trivial for God. But then I made the connection to the plagues on Egypt. God wasn't wasn't toying with Pharaoh. He He wasn't messing around. He was trying to get Pharaoh's attention. And you'll notice the plagues of Egypt get progressively more serious. Um, here, with the trumpets blowing, it doesn't get progressively more serious. So I thought, is God toying with the world here? But he's not. It's a warning shot. Just as the plagues on Egypt were warnings to Pharaoh until it finally had to cost people's lives before Pharaoh's heart would break and he would turn the, the, the Israelites loose. 
then his heart went right back and he pursued them and tried to wipe them out anyway. But in Revelation, it's a little bit different. It's not that God is progressively taking away more of the earth to force people to believe him. It's just a warning. These are just warning shots that God releases into the world to say, I'm at work, you should pay attention. Now, will those warning shots look exactly like these plagues are described here? No, they will not. They're not supposed to. These are not historical events you have to watch for. These are not spelled out in any chronological order. It's to say, God is always at work. He has been since the time of Pharaoh. He still is today. God is always at work in this world, sending indicators that his people belong under his dominion, that his people belong to him, that those who try to control them, those who try to rule them, those who try to do them harm are going to come to an end, and it won't be a nice end. What did Jesus say? He said that his believers, his followers were his children. He called them little ones. And he said, if anyone does harm to any of these little ones of mine, whether they're children or they're 75 years old, there'll come a day that he'll wish he'd had a millstone tied around his neck and been thrown in the deepest part of the ocean rather than have to face me. It's probably the strongest thing that Jesus says. And, and, and it's in the context of little bitty kids. He really is making that very strong protective statement about children, but he also called adults his children. So he means everybody, but he's really focused on little children. And it's, it's really a, a stark, tough statement from Jesus. You touch a child, you harm a child, and I will, I will turn you inside out. It's it's tough, but that's the spirit of Revelation chapter 8. God is saying to you, I'm on this earth. I'm in this world. I'm working through my people and through natural influences. I am working through all of creation to accomplish my purpose, and I will protect you through it all. That's really the point here. God wants you to know that whatever you see going on around you, he's got you. You're protected. Maybe not physically. People are going to starve tomorrow who believe in Jesus Christ. People are going to die of cancer tomorrow who believe in Jesus Christ. Young kids who believe in Jesus Christ are going to get physically abused tomorrow. I wish it wasn't that way. But God is saving our souls. God is preserving us for eternity. No matter what the world throws at us, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what the world does to you, what they do to you at work today, what they do to you at home today, what your family says, what your friends say, what the people in town say, God save us from all that. He is. He's preserving you in spite of all the junk that goes on around you because he knows you live in a world that is always in a significant part dying and yet it survives. He's not going to harm you. He's going to keep you. He's going to preserve you. He's going to bring you healing. He's going to bring you he's going to bring you restoration.
He's going to bring you the things that you need and the blessings from his hand that he will pour out on you because you belong to him. Keep your center. Keep your faith. Keep your eyes on God today because he's got you. I don't know what you face. And some of it may be very despairing. Some of it may be very serious. I just want you to know through whatever you face today, those are just the things that are meant to get all of our attention to remember there's a God at work in this world. You may see a whole lot of evil all around you. Okay, that's at work in this world too. Now, change your focus, look around for a moment, and look to see all the things that God is doing on the other side of the coin. So often we get distracted by the evil. Take a moment and see everything good that's going on around you. Count the blessings that you have, the good things in your life. I was talking to a guy a couple days ago, and I said, You've, at some point, we've got to take inventory of all the great things that we really do have and are really available to us. We've got to find the things that we are best at and then put feet to those things. Actualize those things. Empower those things. Be the best person you can be by doing what you do best. And all the junk, oh, it is overwhelming at times, isn't it? But God will see to that. There's a God at work in this world, and he's working for your benefit. So go have a tremendous day. And remember to look for the things that are your best.